0: We are going to be speaking about the Incarnation today. So, uh, it's an exciting thing. The verse that I chose is our verse of the month, John 1.14. Um, if you want to open there, um, we're just going to start in the verse and kind of walk through it a little bit. So, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The gospel in simple terms is this idea. God became man. It's a very simple definition. God became man. God put on flesh. Um, And the problem with simplicity is that it lacks depth, precision, and nuance, but it is still a true statement. God became man. If the definition you have of the incarnation is that God became man, praise God. Um, there are people who uh, would say that God cannot become man, and there would say that there are people who would say that man cannot be indwelt by God. But we as Christians believe that God um, in Christ Jesus uh, became man and took on human flesh. Um, <clears throat> but your definition should not stop there. Um, and if your mind doesn't have the resources to try and grasp beyond that, um, your understanding of the Bible, um, God's salvation, and Jesus Christ could be stunted into a state of immaturity. If you have a nativity scene Christology of the incarnation, um, that's not a deep understanding of what Jesus did for us. Um, The incarnation by no means is not less than the statement God became man. However, it is a lot more than just that. Every act that God does demonstrates his character and nature. God has no frivolous actions. God, by his very nature, is fettered to this truth. Every act he performs bears with it the weight of the utmost purpose. If it were not true that God only works with supremely perfect purpose in all he does and says, God would be aiming at something lower than his own being. Um, thereby making a division between God's perfect being and God's perfect willing. God's will and being are coterminous. They're one in the same in him. All that to say the incarnation is one of those acts of God that cannot be ignored when considering the perfect nature of God. The incarnation is not a strange accident in God, nor is it a chance occurrence. God shaped the universe that he might enter into it. It is not after the fact that he came up with the Incarnation. It is he had the Incarnation in mind when he created the world. Now, there are pitfalls we must avoid when talking about the Incarnation. Understanding the Incarnation should not primarily focus on the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. Those are important. They're in the Word of God. We should study them and know them um, but many Christians get so carried away with the breadth of information on the particular details of jesus birth they forget to make the sermon about Jesus. Uh, was Jesus born in a barn or a cave? Uh, what age was Jesus when? Uh, was when the wise man brought the gifts? Was the star over Bethlehem a real star or a divine miracle? Was the night actually holy or wasn 't it? Um, Christians love feeling clever by subverting the traditional expectations and understandings surrounding the Christmas narrative. They think that if they can make you go, wow, I really didn't know that the sheep in the barn would make the silent night not so silent, um, they've sufficiently communicated the gospel to you during Christmas time. Um, <clears throat> I'm sure that those people who do that sort of thing, saying things like, you must know that Jesus wasn't blonde hair and blue eyed, mean well. Um, But Jesus never spoke to us to make sure that we knew what he looked like. Um, We just knew that he was ugly or had no form of comeliness, that we should desire him or want him um, because he was a man like us, um, but also God. He told us to call people to faith and repentance, and you can (coughs) do those things, Uh, without regard for those details. Again, those details are important, but they shouldn't overtake who God is. The Incarnation, when we speak of it properly, has next to nothing with those details. Uh, The Incarnation teaches us how we should see God by faith, and not how we should see God in a visual depiction. Now, um, I hope you don't go and make the conclusion that Uh, Brother Josh doesn't find the historical particulars of the Bible important, because I do. Um, It's easy to miss the forest for the trees. Um, The stunning and wonderful fact of God becoming man is not due primarily to the bizarre circumstances and events surrounding its birth. It's those things that happen to teach us about his nature and being. Whether or not he was in a wooden barn or cave is irrelevant, and the temptation for religious people, overtly religious people, um, we can see in the day of Jesus and in the Pharisees is they opened their Bibles and didn't see Jesus. They saw all the other things. They, they didn't know that it was about Jesus Christ. John 5, 39 through 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. It's uh, actually quite comical if you start speaking to a Christian about nativity around Christmas. You might be standing there looking at uh, at a nativity scene. It may be even their own nativity scene, and they start pointing out the flaws and inaccuracies in the diorama. And by the end of the chat, any person who had the unfortunate opportunity to hear the whole thing is probably wondering why they have the thing up in the first place. Um, If basically the whole thing is a depiction of something other than what actually happened. Um, If your discussion to others about the Incarnation um, and Jesus' birth starts and ends with outlining historical details and goes no further to a call of faith and repentance... And you have done nothing except to point out to people that you really care about history. Um, we ought rather to speak of Christ's <coughs> current throne in power than his humble birthplace if we can't make the connection between Christ's incarnation and every man's desperate need for a savior. Jesus should not merely be plastic light-up figurines on our lawn during Christmas time. Cleverness and comprehension are poor substitutes to the incarnate savior. Thomas Brooks says this about focusing on even good things from God that are close to Christ but fall short of Him. He says, Grace is a ring of gold, and Christ is the pearl in that ring, and he that looks more upon the ring than the pearl that is in it in the hour of temptation will certainly fall. When the wife's eye is upon her rings or jewels, then her heart must be set upon her husband. When grace is in the eye, Christ must be at that time in the arms. Christ and not grace must lie nearest to the Christian's heart. It's easy to confuse those two things. Um, Grace can be abused. The written word can be abused if it leads to anywhere besides the feet of the incarnate Savior. We must also refrain from any conception that there was nothing that was absolutely new revealed to us about God in the incarnation. We have promises given to us in the Old Testament, but they aren't fulfilled until Christ was born. And when Christ was born, it went Beyond the promises because it was the fulfillment of those promises. He was the person who answered those things that God gave to us in the Old Testament. Um, some fall into the trap of being snared by the signs and symbols surrounding the incarnation, and then there are those who stumble over the power of God and just being on being able to take on human flesh. Because God is infinite, immutable, eternal, spirit, simple, and absolute, the incarnation can, if you are thinking in philosophical categories primarily rather than biblical categories, uh, throw a monkey wrench in your whole um, system of theology making endless technical distinctions surrounding the nature of God and Christ, these are important. You need to know that God is fully Christ and fully man, that there is no division, that there is only one Christ, and these are not parts of Christ, but there is only one Christ. Um, read the Chalcedonian definition. We've done that before. Read it again. It's a good definition. Store it in your heart. It's our faith. It's our history. Sit under it. It is a good teacher. Um, but if when you talk about the incarnation, you're more concerned with how um, the finite can bear the fullness of the infinite. And that is where your conversation starts and stops instead of just being amazed by the fact that God came to us and loved us enough to become a little baby. And the, and the incarnation becomes a, a logical problem for us to solve before we can submit unto it. We've missed the force for the trees in the opposite direction. You see, in our text, we're dealing with both Jews and Gentiles, and each of them have their own specific set of temptations. Our understanding of God should grow by thinking on the incarnation. Um, but even in speaking <coughs> about God in intense and meaningful ways, we can dishonor him in our hearts. Isaiah twenty nine thirteen through 14, because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. The incarnation is the first wonder displayed to us, the second, the resurrection. Topics discussed by the men who love accurate history and rigorous systematic theology are seriously important for the church to think about and know. Think about and know. I am also not saying that if you preach and teach these subjects, you're wrong to do so by no means, especially around Christmas. We should be thinking about these things, um, But what I'm saying is that if these subjects become the only topic for consideration when you think or speak about the incarnation, you want to reorient yourself away from those things and sit with a humble attitude at the feet of Christ and receive by faith who he is and what he's done for you in his birth. Having known all things ever from before the foundation of the world and still yet willing to learn, this is Christ, in ways um, that he had not previously had in his own life, because he was only God and not man before he was incarnate, God, as God possessed the mind of Christ before the incarnation, he knew all he would ever know, and yet it could be said that Jesus Christ learned. What humility in our God. The omniscient creator of all the universe willingly humbled himself so that he might prove the essential necessity of meekness in the life of his Christians. That if God can learn, so can you. All that God does is a reflection of who God is. Our knowledge of God shapes our understanding of the world. Many people like to think that God first ordained the course of the world and then after having become aware that there would be a a fall, responds with a rescue plan to save humanity from their sin. This is not the biblical conception of God. God does not and cannot respond to any event in history. There is nothing that made God do anything. All events in history and their subsequent interpretations are shaped according to who God is and bend under his will and power. He is omnipotent. Simply put, the world bends under God's sovereign will to demonstrate who he is, and we see that in the incarnation. The world is the way it is because God saw fit to show his power and glory by becoming a man. God's glory in Christ in the incarnation was the aim of God from before the foundation of the world. That's exactly what John 1.14 is telling us, When God spoke the world into existence in Genesis 1 by his word, he did it with the specific aim of him coming into our world as a man in the incarnation. That's why we have the phrase, the word became flesh. John was writing to the Gentile world in his gospel, and so he refers to one of the ubiquitous and essential parts of Greek thinking, and that's the word, the Logos. Socrates considered it the reason and logic of the universe. Plato considered it the active divine ordering principle of the universe. Logos was often spoken of in Greek thinking in the same sense of how we as Reformed Christians speak of providence. All things working towards an end orchestrated by an intelligence. It's just we Christians know to what end and who's working it. John is saying what Paul says on Mars Hill, something like this. Um, This essential and foundational part of your thinking about the world, which you cannot identify because the natural world can only teach you so much about him, is Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah in the Jewish scriptures. So when God created the world and orchestrated it from eternity, he had in mind his becoming a man, his becoming a little baby, to teach the world who he is and how we should come to know him. The aim of the Incarnation was not only present in creation and the Greek conception of providence. The Incarnation was also the aim of the Mosaic Law. When the text says that he dwelt among us, the word dwelt in Greek is es- eskenosen Strong's Concordance identifies this word as meaning to dwell as in a tent or tabernacle the shape of all that happened to the Israelites in the wilderness when Moses was given instruction on the tabernacle and tent of meeting, was given to Moses not primarily as a legitimate means of reconciling God and man in itself. Rather, the old covenant, the time of tabernacling, was ordained and shaped by God with the aim of the incarnation in mind, that the tabernacle, the temple, the giving of the law, these things were to drive us to the idea that we need a more permanent and eternal solution and that is God dwelling in man. Um, the aim of God revealing himself to his people that in a way that in a way that we as humans would understand. You see if you try to grasp God in his theology proper exclusively in his eternal and absolute nature, you as a human, tatter away into nothingness. You cannot have a relationship with that which is holy, eternal, righteous, absolute, and perfect unless one who has all those essential qualities and attributes advocates for you on your behalf to the one who you must go to while also going to you in a way that you can understand. And that's why he takes on human flesh is that he is the one who goes between God and man because he is perfectly suited to come to both of us. And so, these two conceptions, Greek providence and the design of the Old Testament worship, were added to the word to to draw every man, woman, and child's eye to the idea that God would be here with us one day. That the reason the world is so fallen and broken and destitute and devastated is because one day God's going to make all those things right. And the incarnation was the first true and real application of those promises in this life. We do not have time to consider the particulars of these ideas and how they add to our understanding of the incarnation and. Because you could go to the tabernacle and you could look at Greek philosophy and you could kind of parse out all the details of how these things help us in our understanding of what Jesus did for us. But here's the essential rub. The main point of these two ideas coming together in Jesus Christ is this. First is that Gentiles have a knowledge of God that comes from the world and the Jews have a knowledge of God that comes from special revelation. And these two knowledges of him in Christ Jesus become unified And that knowledge in him is the knowledge that we possess as Christians by faith. Is that he is the the sovereign ruler of the universe and he is the one who comes to us in particular in his word and we must submit to both these facts that he is transcendent and he is imminent. He is above and he is below. He is without and he is within. The wonder of the incarnation is is not so much that the perfect God who can do whatever he wants makes himself a child, as if uh, it were some cosmic talent of God with him saying to the whole universe, look what what I can do. Rather, the wonder of the incarnation is that God would be lying about his nature and being if he didn't enter into humanity, if he didn't become a baby. It is an essential part of who he is. It would be impossible to possess the knowledge of God at all if Jesus Christ were not born as a child. The incarnation is absolutely essential. So we should have an accurate understanding of what it is. is God and man in one child who is perfect and righteous and holy. So John writes what this specific conception is in the text, that it is the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what is this glory? Why is it absolutely essential that we should have seen him born as a baby? Um, Why couldn't he have just beamed himself into creation um, as the Lord of all creation and demand complete and utter obedience to his rule and reign? Why could he not do that? Why did he not do that? The kingdom of this only begotten son is a kingdom of grace and truth. It is a kingdom where the eternal Lord of glory divests himself of his essential rights for a time, veiling his glory to show that the essential glory he desires, the way that he wants you to know him and serve him and love him and pour out your life for him. um, (coughs) The faith that you must possess is not a proud faith, but a humble faith of utter servitude and submission to God and love towards your fellow man, regardless of what happens to you. <clears throat> Jesus Christ became a man to be able to say these words, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Jesus took on flesh so that it could be said that he too was poor in spirit, that he mourned, that he hunger and thirsted, Not after righteousness in himself, but for us. These core components to our faith given to us by Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount are not merely helpful practical guides to teach us to get ahead in our own personal goals and investments. They are given to us because Jesus became a man that the true Christian faith, that the whole meaning of Christmas and the Incarnation isn't about generic charity towards the people you like. It's not the Christmas carol where you get scared into trying to be a better person. Um, It's not about doing good to those less fortunate than you. Um, It's not about proper historical and theological conceptions. Uh, the whole incarnation is given to us that you might know that the same God in Isaiah, who is high and lifted up, and the whole train of his robe fills the temple, and the angels cannot look bear to look at him, cry out, "Holy, holy, holy!" And Isaiah stands before him, saying, "Woe to me, I am undone! I am a man of unclean lips amidst a people of unclean lips. that selfsame God is the God who was born. And cried out like a little baby and could do nothing except depend upon what his father supplied for him and those, in, in those who he has been given. That is the same God we serve today. Here's Thomas Brooks again. One asked a philosopher what God was doing. He answered that his whole work was to lift up the humble and to cast down the proud. There is never a man more perfectly humble than our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, he is highly exalted. Here are some practical observations that we should consider in the Incarnation. This is our application here. There's six points. I'm going to kind of run through them quickly. Jesus Christ accomplished more in his first breath as a baby than any man, depending upon his own works in this life. Jesus was of more value and worth than Jeff Bezos, King Solomon, and Elon Musk all combined together when all he could do was depend on his mother as a child. The humble soul knows that he needs no worldly skill, talent, or power to accomplish the works of God. Jesus shattered the kingdoms of of darkness with a rattle in one hand and the rod of Jesse in the other. Three, spiritual contentment can possess you at any age if you recognize your smallness before God. Jesus never cried unduly as a child. He never threw a tantrum, never shouted, Mine! When taking a toy from another child, um, even though he could rightfully say, that is my toy. <laughs> he never did it. Um, we have a hard time doing that even as adults sometimes, looking at other people's things and saying, I wish that were mine. Um, he never woke up with a bad attitude. Uh, he never groaned when his mother told him to take out the trash, if that's what they did back then. Um, Spiritual contentment in God is never a matter of external circumstances, but of one's own understanding of themselves before God. And that Jesus Christ put himself in a place where he might be tempted to be discontent. Coming into the world, everything makes us discontent if we are not looking to Jesus Christ. There's not one thing in this life that will satisfy you at all, ever. And constantly they're pinging out to us, be satisfied in me, be satisfied in me, be satisfied in me. And Jesus Christ turned them all down and he said, I must be about the work of my Father. There's nothing else that satisfies me. The humble soul would choose willingly to suffer all of the worst providences of God if it had the ability to know them before they occurred. Humility grants the ability to receive any bitter herb given with a grateful and submissive heart. Jesus Christ knew what he would do. He chose it. He saw that he would be born, and he would be rejected, and he would be betrayed, and he would be hated, and he would be crucified, and he would be whipped and bruised and utterly hated by the nations of the world. And he chose it for the sake of his glory, for the sake of you and me. And so if we want to grow in Christ's likeness, the humble soul goes, if I could see these harsh providences in my life, I would side with God in giving them to me rather than removing them from me. A humble soul cannot, a humble soul dares not call anything that has Christ in it. Uh, no, neither can a humble soul call or, oh, sorry, I said that wrong. A humble soul cannot, a humble soul dares not call anything little that has Christ in it. Neither can a humble soul call or count anything great where he does not see Christ, where he doesn't enjoy Christ. You see, there is more enjoyment and satisfaction in a manger filled with Jesus Christ than all of the riches the world could offer you. And that is what we should dwell on. <coughs> And it was a sweet observation of Luther that, for the most part, when God set him upon any special service for the good of the church, he was brought low by some fit of sickness or other. Surely as the lower the ebb, the higher the tide. So the lower any descend into humility, the higher they shall ascend in honor and glory. The lower this foundation of humility is laid, the higher shall the roof of honor be overlaid. That's another Thomas Brooks quote. Um, The main lesson of the incarnation is this. Our God is a holy God. And this holiness could not properly be shown unless he humbly took on flesh. Jesus was humbled and humiliated willingly on our behalf that we may know that the path into the kingdom of God, the way of the kingdom of God is humility and contentment, faith and trust in his provision for you to believe that the Godchild could save you and forgive your sins when even all he could do was coo in the arms of his mother, if truly grasped by faith, humbles the greatest of men to their knees and calls kings from far away to service and obedience to this holy, humble God. And I'll close with these words from Philippians 2, 1 through 11. on a cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the incarnation. We thank you that you came down and dwelt with us and indwell in us, O Lord. We thank you that um, we as humans are more suited to be indwelt by you than the tabernacle and the temple ever was. That we were designed and shaped to be filled up by Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that we would be, God. We thank you for your humility that you came down and became a child, took on human flesh, um, died the death that we did not deserve and rose again from the dead so that we who trust in you might have newness of life, Lord. Father, I pray that any time we get into a conversation about the incarnation, we will be reminded of this humble attitude we ought to have, that we would not be tempted to um, pride pride or arrogance, which is constantly um, in our hearts, Lord, but rather we should be emptied of ourselves, for it is the man who is emptied most of himself that gets Christ the glory. So empty us, uh, empty us of ourselves, God. We thank you for this season. We thank you for um, what you have done for us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.